I cannot believe we are in the kind of home stretch of 2019. To me, that's bonkers. Uh, I'm still writing 2014 on checks. Also, I'm still writing checks, which is weird. But it occurs to me that 2020 is coming, and that is an election year. And so I'm going to have to unplug at some point. Unplug from the television, the radio, social media. With every passing cycle, I can stand it less. All the shouting, all the vitriol, all the anger. The, the whole thing reminds me of that, that movie where Steve Carell is, is in the midst of all these people who are all very mad and, and shouting, and he just says, I don't know why we're yelling! And that sounds like that to me, all, all around. And you know what? I, I, I kind of grit my teeth, and I get through it, and then I wait for these moments of unity that happen. There's a few things in our country that, that cause people to come together across the aisle. That moment when, when the, the State of the Union, perhaps the first State of the Union especially, of a new president, when the president's coming in and everyone from both sides of the aisle come up and clap and try and shake his hand and there's a moment of, oh, we're not yelling at each other and calling each other's monsters. Or, or the inauguration itself even. When a, a, the, the thing's been settled and a new president comes in and, and people gather together, and yeah, there are always those who are, who are still angry, but there seems to be just a moment of national togetherness. And I was thinking about uh, this little clip I saw uh, from the inauguration. Uh, the second time uh, President Obama was inaugurated, there was a, a, a camera that had kind of got in at him from an angle, and I don't think he knew he was being uh, filmed uh, I mean, he had to know there were flashes all over, but he, they, were, they were leaving, and he said, hold on, I want to look at this one more time. I'm not going to see this again. And he looked back, and he looked at the inauguration, all the people gathered, and he kind of smiled, and then he turned and took his wife's hand and walked away. And I remember thinking, oh, wherever you are in a political spectrum, that kind of human moment has got to connect with you. And you know, it connected with me because I'm always that guy who's like, hold on, don't let this end yet. Let's, let's kind of keep it going. I'm always, in fact, when we were coming back from Israel, I had gone with two very close friends of mine and then a bunch of new friends that I met from all over the country. We spent 11 days in Israel. We're coming back on the, on the back end of an international 11-hour flight. We're all just ruined, jet lag, you know, the whole thing. And, and it's, it's morning in uh, New York City. And I said to the group, I said, listen, there's a restaurant here. All of us have long layovers. Let's go have one more breakfast together. And they all said, Zach, no way. We're exhausted. We all just want to kind of stare out the window and wait for our connecting flights to come in. And I was so bummed. I was, I was like, no, no, let's, let's keep it going. Let's not stop. We see a little bit of that here, I think, in this, in this passage. Because there's a new chapter that's starting, and when new chapters come, they're exciting, but there's also that thing that kind of holds us back. In, in the safety of the old chapter, or in the, the warmth of the familiar experience. This passage begins with the words, after all these things, which is a very broad statement. After all what things? P perhaps after all of these things we've been reading about Paul in the book of Acts. After all these things, Paul purposed in his spirit to do something different. After all these things tells us that we're changing gears. A new chapter is not beginning here in the Bible, but a new chapter is beginning in Paul's ministry. And the time had come for him to leave Ephesus, where he had been for quite some time, 
And to even leave this old stomping ground, you see uh, the, on one side we've got the, the uh, first and second, and then the other side the third and fourth missionary journeys. And you see how the first, second, and third are all the same area, looping around, looping around. And then when you flip it over, the fourth one goes way beyond. You see, Paul's going to move now into a new chapter of his ministry. He's going to move on to a different mission field and ultimately to Rome. And this is the first reference to that. It's going to be something that sort of guides the direction of the book of Acts going forward. Paul is making plans here. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, when we see someone making plans, even in the scripture, my first reaction is like, don't do that. Careful, don't make too firm of plans. You know, we have the old proverb, we make plans and God laughs. And there's the actual proverb in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 27, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. When I think of making plans, firm plans, I think of uh, the book of James, the epistle of James, in which we have that whole passage. Come now, those who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So is it ungodly to make plans to not leave everything just open to wherever god would lead me i'm just on this kind of journey like david carradine and kung fu just walking around well no we see godly people making plans even jesus sets his face to jerusalem we make plans the the sin in this passage is not making plans and it's not making money and it's not making plans of making money in fact, the person here could be saying, we will go to such and such a town and make this number of converts and then move on. The point is that we do not ultimately know that what, what tomorrow brings. We, we will not be in control of our destination or the path that gets us there. When we make plans, we must hold them loosely and submit them to God's will. And we can hold them a little tighter if we believe that we are in God's will for our lives as we make them. And yet even Jesus, when he was going to the cross, was sure as he prayed to say, not my will, but your will be done. When James says, do not boast about what you will do, his his solution is to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Notice he doesn't just say, if the Lord wills, we will go to this city and make money. No, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Not only do we not know where we'll be tomorrow or what life will look like, we don't know if we'll be alive. And as Christians, we do have the hope, the expectation, and the solid ground on which to hope for eternal life, everlasting life. But in this life, as James reminds us, it's a moment of mist, here and then gone. And our plans, yes, are sometimes a necessity, are sometimes good, but we must hold them loosely. Paul's plans here are pretty specific. Notice he does not say that he resolved to go to Ikea. It's through Macedonia and Achaia onto Rome. 
after stopping in Jerusalem. And we, we read through his letters and we get a clearer picture of what he is hoping to do. He's going through these, these uh, Roman provinces. He's going to go to Thessalonica, Berea. He's going to go to Corinth again. He's going to go to Philippi. He's, he's going to, as he goes, be collecting money for the struggling saints in Jerusalem. Then he's going to go to Jerusalem, deliver that money to them, and from there, his intention is to visit Rome, and then from there to go even further to Spain. To go out to the, the places that the gospel, as far as he knows, has not yet been. And of course, this whole time throughout not only the book of Acts, but the gospels, Roman power has been an ever-present force. Kind of this off-screen character the whole time. And Paul starts putting his his bullseye on it. I'm going to go to the center of that power, that worldly power and influence, and there I'm going to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean here that he purposed in his spirit or in the spirit, or that he resolved in the spirit to do this? The, the NIV just says he decided that is a very weak translation. The NIV usually doesn't let me down. I didn't check the 2012 to see if, uh, the 2011 rather, to see if it was better. But maybe write a little note if you've got the NIV in front of you. Decided doesn't cut it. It's decided or better resolved in the spirit. Does this just mean that in his spirit, Paul said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. My mind and my spirit and my heart, they're all of one accord. No, there's something deeper here. Luke doesn't say he purposed in his spirit. Rather, he purposed in the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the Greek is a little bit ambiguous here, too, and I think it's intentional. Because this is not a situation where God, like with come over to Macedonia and help us, by special revelation says this is where you are to come or where you are to go. But it's also not just Paul on a whim. What we see here is Paul's will, Paul resolved, and God's will in the Spirit together in concert. And this is how it works for a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is our goal, that our will and God's will would be in concert. He's gone through a process, undoubtedly, of praying, of, of the Spirit leading, walking in the Spirit through study, through careful meditation, through talking with other believers through discernment and looking at the circumstances, and he has been led now to a certain place of thinking God is bringing him away from Ephesus and then on to a whole new mission field. When I read this, he's in Ephesus, he's there for a while, things are going well. My question in my mind is, why would you leave it all? I don't think I would. I don't like change. That's, you know, part of being Baptist. Something we have to fight against sometimes. Sometimes it's a strength. Sometimes it's a liability. But why would you leave when things are going so well? God has been smiling on this mission in Ephesus. When he first came, he's greeted with open arms and interest in the gospel. They say, stay, stay forever, Mr. Paul. He says, I can't, but I'll be back. First chance he gets, he comes back. He's able to teach in the synagogues a record three months. And then when he comes against a little bit of pushback and it kind of dries up there, he goes down the road to the hall of Tyrannus, a lecture hall, and there he keeps regular hours and he teaches six days a week the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, I mean, this is the dream for a guy who's been stoned and, and 
arrested and there's been all sorts of stuff happening. He, he, he's now saying it's time to move on. And my question is, why? Paul, you're, on average, has stayed, as far as we can tell, about three weeks everywhere he goes. And now he's found a place where for two and a half years, vibrant ministry can take place. There's a certain equilibrium here. He has students. He's had great success. He's sending missionaries. This lecture hall is not just an evangelism outpost, a, a revival meeting that's ongoing. It's also a seminary. And people who are getting saved, they're getting trained, and they're being sent out to all the cities of Asia. It's going well. It's a well-oiled machine. Everything's finally working the way it should. That's why I think in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, so I think I'll stay a little while longer in Ephesus. Well, as he decides to leave, undoubtedly Paul thinks of his initial commission to be the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jews, to go where no one has brought the, the gospel yet, out to the spiritual frontier, the Wild West, if you will, and that is the direction he is headed. And more than that, the Holy Spirit is leading him. From the outside, looking at the situation, Yes, it seems like there's no real reason to leave. And yet he's compelled to move on from within. The Spirit's leading. Not a direct revelation, but the unction within. This is the same sort of thing I think he's talking about when he will say a little later in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is pressing me toward Jerusalem. Let me ask you this. When was the last time in making a decision, big or small, that you factored in the Holy Spirit's leading to that decision? Or have we become kind of so divorced from the spiritual end of things in our culture that we sort of make a pros and cons list or weigh things in our mind or just go with our gut and trust it and don't take time to seek the face of God and study the scriptures and pray and go to a, a, a wide array of counselors and try and determine what the Holy Spirit is compelling us to do. This is a tricky business, and so a lot of people just stay wide of it. It's difficult because it's often hard to figure out what is just our emotion, our desire, and what really is God's leading. And we have a tendency, I think, to, to say, well, this is what I want to do, and attribute it to God. God's leading me to do this or that. There are ways to protect against that. One is to have a multitude of counselors, uh, of people speaking into your life, who will call you on it and say, listen, no, 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 you don't, you don't, you want to do this or you don't want to do that. Don't put that on God. Secondly is to be studying his word, be deep in his word, to fill your heart with his word. Because here's a, a fact, the Holy Spirit will never contradict God's holy word. I've so many times heard people, especially when they've been caught in this or that, an extramarital affair, or they've been, they've been caught you know, using church funds to do something. And they say, oh, well, the, the Spirit freed me to do that, freed me from this obligation, freed me of it. No, the Spirit will never contradict the Word. And so that's another hedge against that kind of abuse. But it can be difficult, and one thing we need to do is ask ourselves, what, what is my motivation here? Am I being motivated by something that God would not use to motivate me? Am I motivated by fear here? Because we know that God has not given us a spirit of fear. He told us. Am I motivated by selfish gain, by ease and comfort, by a desire for self-aggrandizing? That's why we should be very slow, I think, to determine where God is leading. 
as individuals and as churches. This whole popular notion of everybody gather together in one place and in a day or two we'll brainstorm and we'll bang out a, a mission statement and that'll determine the direction of our church for the next 10 years. That's foolhardy. Walking with the Spirit is not something you get out of the way. It's something that we do in an ongoing, slow, and deliberate way. In fact, for, for the third time in this passage, the, the Christian church is referred to as the way or the road. This is a walk down the road, the narrow road, together as those who follow Jesus. You know, oftentimes pastors will attribute everything they do. This is, this is a very real temptation to the Holy Spirit. Well, God would have me tell you that we're going to do this, or God would have me move on from this church. That's what Paul's kind of doing. He's moving on to a new setting. Well, when a pastor says, God is telling me to move on, he's going to have to ask himself once again, what are the things that are motivating me? Is it money? I want more of it. Prestige, a bigger church. Is it running from problems? I'm tired of dealing with this or that. I, I, I'm, I'm done with, with Bob over here and, and the way that he's always picking at me. I had a professor in seminary say, never leave a church to get away from something. If you leave to get away from this guy, five of his cousins will be waiting at the next church. What is it that's motivating me? Is, is it the Holy Spirit that is leading here? There are many wrong reasons to move on from something, be it a church or a job or a city or whatever. The, the presence of opposition is not a good reason to leave. In fact, when Paul describes the situation in Ephesus, he says, big open door to ministry, and there are many adversaries. And I know I'm in danger of beating a dead horse here, but it bears repeating. An open door to ministry doesn't mean that there is no pushback, that there are no adversaries, that there's nobody working against you. In fact, if there's nobody working against you, that might mean that you're not doing very effective ministry. The presence of some adversaries is not a reason to move on to a new place. Fleeting feelings are not a good reason. Things like a turning in my stomach, or maybe a lack of butterflies in my stomach, or, or, or some kind of warm feeling in the cockles of my heart or deeper in the subcockle area. No, I, I just don't feel it anymore, and so I'm moving on. People have moved on from marriages based on something as silly as butterflies in the stomach who are no longer fluttering. People move on from churches because, well, it seems a little rote. I've been there a long time. It's not new and exciting anymore. People have moved out from the church because of that. I go to churches and it just seems like, you know, it's a lot of the same preaching, the same books, the same Bible, the same hymns and chorus songs again and again. Maybe it's time for me to just be spiritual and not religious. Maybe the Spirit is moving me in that direction. Nope, because the Spirit won't contradict the Word, and the Word commands us to meet together as the church of Jesus Christ. I, I at one point, shared with a colleague of mine, Ed Owens, who used to pastor Olivet, and now he's uh, working for the, the region because he's retired. That's how pastors retire. I'm retired. Oh, really? Where are you working? The region. But um, it, it's part-time, I think, as a consultant but we were talking about some struggles some of us were having in our, our ministry group. And he said, you know, the temptation is always there when it's a difficult time, especially if it's a time of people leaving the church or walking away or whatever. There's the temptation to say, now's a good time for me to move on. But don't. And he told us about how, I mean, he was at Olivet for 33 years or something like that. He said, I went through four or five 
different difficult times. We would grow and then people would leave. And I would think, ah, oh, maybe, maybe I'm no longer effective. But he stayed because the Spirit wasn't leading him to leave, but to be a consistent presence there and to lead them through this. And they would grow again and they would, they would find new ministries, more effective ministries. And then there'd be another challenge and, and things might have a, another. There's an ebb and flow to everything, including ministry. There's undoubtedly an ebb and flow in your job in your family, in your home life. I think about Judson's history, about uh, coming here in 2005 and having us grow and grow rather quickly for about two and a half to three years, and then uh, kind of a plateau, and then starting to go, oh no, am I already past my prime at like 30? And, and, and then we, we look around, there's no kids, and we start praying for kids, praying for kids. Sean's even praying for kids. That, you know you're in trouble then, right? How many kids we got up here? I can't keep track of them all. And then I go, okay, well, hey, now, now things are going well. All right, so I'm, I'm definitely going to... And then you go, oh, hold on, wait a minute. We got a lot of kids, but once they leave, I can probably name two dozen people who used to come once a week, who come once a month now. Mm, maybe somebody else coming would just be fresh face and, and give us a little punch. It's, it's, it's a real concern when we are quick to determine what God would have us do, what the Spirit is leading us to do. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Slow to act. If you are, if you are determining whether or not to stay in a setting, to stay in, in whatever the case, if, if you are saying, God, do you want me to stay here? Don't go, okay, I think I got my answer because I feel a peace or I don't. We need to be in the Word. We need to be in prayer. Well, Paul went through all this. He purposed in his spirit. And yet, he stops and he says, how about, how about one more breakfast at JFK? Right? Let's, let's keep this thing going. He hangs back a little longer after purposing in the spirit to move on. He sends his advanced team, which is Timothy and Erastus, ahead. He says, you guys go prepare the way. I'm right behind you. All right, I'm just going to finish some things up here in Ephesus. I, I'm, I'm going to enjoy this a little bit more, and then I'll leave here in peace, which is something that Paul has almost never been able to do. He's generally chased out of a city, or he's smuggled out in a basket or something because people are on his tail. And so this must have felt to him like a wonderful opportunity. I'm just going to, I'm going to milk it a little bit more. We've already read the text. You know he doesn't get to leave in peace. You see, the future is unknown. Rome is unknown. Spain is certainly unknown. That was the end of the world. Remember when Jonah wanted to get as far away as possible? What's the edge of the world? Spain. And, and so Paul is just taking a moment. We can't blame him. He's taking a moment in the known, in the comfortable place. To remain there. And when that happens, God has to remind him who is in charge. Don't you love it when that happens? About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you know that this Paul... He is preaching against us. What we probably see happening here is just the guild gathering together, the trade guild. And as they gather, either Demetrius is their leader or he is just the most vocal of all of them. 
He brings in the most business. He, he's able to kind of get them all amped up. What they did is these silversmiths would make shrines that looked exactly like a scale model of the temple of Artemis of Ephesus. And so when people would come to worship this goddess in Ephesus, they would buy a little version of it, bring it home, and continue to worship that god at home. It was good business. And even if one did not worship Artemis, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was amazing, these enormous columns, just tons of them. It was, it was, it was a sight to behold, and so if you could afford it, yeah, you would buy yourself a little souvenir. It was a good business to be in, but at this guild meeting, they all start comparing their spreadsheets, their profit and loss statements, and saying this past quarter has been worse even than the one before it, which was worse than the one before it. What is going on? The future is not looking bright. And Demetrius leverages that fear. He's a varsity fearmonger. He starts with the wallet. We are in danger of not getting as rich anymore. I mean, notice he doesn't even say our livelihood depends on this. No, our our, our prosperity depends in this. Our wealth is wrapped up in this. That gets them ramped up, and then together they all decide, but, you know, what it's really about is principle. It's the same thing we saw in chapter 16. Those guys who owned the slave girl, who had the python spirit, Paul cast the spirit out, they can't make money off her anymore. And they say, well, we've lost our, our source of wealth and income and suddenly decide, you know what? We're angry at those guys for bringing foreign gods and foreign ideas. And they get all patriotic and start talking about their culture and heritage. And so this is the message to these tradesmen. For two years, we've put up with this guy and his foreign god and his foreign ideas and the way he disrespects our cultural norms and our spiritual values. And as he speaks, the people get so amped up, they start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Do it with me now. I'm kidding. Don't do it. Don't do it. Let's talk about Artemis of the Ephesians a minute. I I'm sure you're probably not familiar with her. There were actually two Artemises. There was the Greek one, who was a warrior. And then there was the Ephesian one, the Asian one, who was the mother goddess of Asia, also called Sybil, a goddess of fertility. This temple was served by many prostitute priestesses who would go out as part of the quote-unquote worship promoting a fertility goddess. The actual idol itself was carved out of wood, and it was, quote, a many-breasted female terminating in a shapeless block, alleged to have fallen from Jupiter. Not the planet, but the great god, Jupiter. At the bottom it said, by Jove, right there. I don't, I don't know, guys. But that's the, that was the story. It fell from heaven... And so many people thought maybe this, there's a meteorite involved. It's probably just a story that was told. Man, this is a really bad-looking wooden idol. Yeah, but it fell from heaven. It came from Jupiter himself. And as he's getting everyone amped up and the people who are tradesmen go out into the streets and get everyone amped up, they start to exaggerate. The very temple itself is in danger of going from an object of veneration to being a, a source of ridicule for our city, to being despised. And, quote, her magnificence destroyed. What kind of a god depends on people for her magnificence? Not any kind of god. And, he, and I love that he's complaining. He says, this Paul saying that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Duh. But that's their objection. And again, it's a matter of civic and religious pride. Not that we just want to make a lot of money. 
It's about the proper order of things. That's why we've stirred up this chaotic riot, because we value order so much. The two men that they grab are Macedonians, Gaius and Aristarchus. They're, they're companions of Paul, wrong place, wrong time. They, they apparently couldn't find Paul. He wasn't immediately at hand. He was probably in the home of Priscilla and Aquila. They grabbed these two guys because they need someone to blame. There's a riot in the Akkadian Way. It's this, this marble road, and right off of it is this enormous amphitheater. can seat 15 to 20,000 people. They fill in there, just naturally kind of spill in. And that's a place of public meeting. So they're trying to make their riot respectable, like a real meeting. And yet it remains very much a riot. In verse 30, things go from bad to worse. Paul wished to go in among the crowd. The disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. The imperfect tense here indicates that it was difficult for them to keep Paul from, from going to the theater. He wanted to make a defense. He wanted to, to go and relieve his two friends. And yet his disciples were saying, don't go. I, I can just imagine him sitting there trying to sit still and every once in a while standing up. I got to go. And they pull him back down and talk him back down. And then even his friends who are high-ranking officials, these Asiarchs were wealthy, influential, council of people. One was added every year Paul's friends went high. His enemies did as well. They sent word. We know what will happen. They'll tear you apart. Don't go there. And Paul listens. Notice he's the apostle. He's the teacher. They're the disciples. And when they say, don't do it, he listens. Paul doesn't say, I'm, I, I'm the one who has the best connection to the Holy Spirit. No, when Paul says the Spirit is pressing me, is leading me, you can be sure he hasn't come to that conclusion alone. He's the kind of person who takes the, the advice of others to heart, particularly those brothers and sisters who he has led to faith or who have served alongside him, his co-workers in the gospel. But as he sat there and knew this was all playing out without him, he must have been thinking, what happened? How did everything go so wrong? I went from this two-plus years of proclaiming the gospel, very ordered, very regimented. From 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Every day, except for the Sabbath, I teach. People are listening. There is a plentiful harvest. The gospel is being proclaimed. People are coming to faith. Missionaries are going out. Now suddenly, total confusion, and Paul is silenced. What? What happened? Where did I go wrong? His support system that he's been building, well, now two of them he's sent away. Two of them have been dragged away, and the rest of them are saying, shh, zip it, and just stay under the radar, in the shadows. He's been silenced. Why? Perhaps because after resolving in the spirit to move on, he's now hanging back. He's, he's doing what Jesus warned against. Let no man who puts his hand to the plow look back. It feels safer here in Ephesus. There's success here in Ephesus, and suddenly there's not so much success. Well, we cut back to what's going on in the theater. Some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Once again, I don't know why we're yelling, but I am awfully mad. This is something that happens. You probably remember when you were in grade school, if there was a fight, everyone just went there because it was exciting. You didn't know what started the fight, why people were angry, but hey, there's a fight, 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 fight. As adults, hopefully we've outgrown that. 
but it doesn't seem to be the case. There's, there's certainly a tendency in the world today to stir up that sort of thing. And aside, don't be part of a mob. Just don't. They take place now, you know, in, in a little bit more low-key ways, over backyard fences or on the phone or online especially. Somebody does something or says something shameful, they're probably sorry, they wish they hadn't. And yet the world just piles on them to destroy them, to take their name, to, to try and uh, just make them wish they'd never been born. I mean, the mobs no longer look like literal pitchforks and torches. They look like a lot of ones and zeros. We'll, we'll share your contact information around. We'll, we'll make you into a joke. Take away your name. People have committed suicide because of these kind of things. Christians have no business being part of a mob in this way. At this point, though, the, the Jews are getting nervous because they know that in Rome's eyes, these Christians, Paul and his companions, they're just another sect of Jews. And so they say, let's clear things up. They get their best guy, Alexander. They push him forward. They say, listen to him. He stands up to, to speak and immediately they recognize that guy doesn't worship Artemis either. And they start chanting again, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they keep chanting that phrase for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is what it sounds like. I'm going to do it for two hours. Great is... I'm just kidding. When's the last time you said any phrase for two hours? Closest I ever got was as a kid trying to annoy my sister. John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. That felt like 10 hours to her, but it was probably like 10 minutes tops. This is demonic. They don't want to hear the gospel. There is, remember, it's at Ephesus that Paul says, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but principalities, rulers of darkness and high places. It's in Ephesus when people burned all these magical scrolls because they were in bondage to dark powers, and now they're chanting. Two hours, great, is Artemis of the Ephesians at the top of their lungs. I think we see this same policy today. People covering their ears and shouting, not unlike when Stephen was proclaiming the gospel and, and the crowd didn't want to hear it. They covered their ears and just shouted. You see today people covering their ears and shouting their allegiance to the God of our culture, a God like Artemis of the Ephesians of sexual immorality, refusing to listen to the gospel while pointing at the Christians in their midst and saying, these people are the danger to our society. But they have no power. As with Baal's prophets, all these pagans can do is shout themselves hoarse. Their God's majesty, by Demetrius' own confession, depends on them. They, all they can do is, is try and prop up their God's glory and back up the claims of their God for her. These preachers of the gospel have all been silenced and yet, the last thing that happens here is by God's providence. He uses not a Christian, not a Jewish rabbi, but a Roman official to deliver Paul and his companions from this danger. The town clerk gets up. And town clerk doesn't sound like someone with a lot of power, right? Like student body president, that was always a three-way race. And people was very close. A lot, of, a lot of big names, you know, clerk or secretary, that was always unopposed. Whatever, you just want to be on the, on the student council. Not, not like that at all. This town clerk is actually the, the chief executive officer of the city, kind of the mayor, and he's also the liaison between Ephesus and Rome. So he has to answer for any of this kind of stuff that happens along the lines of unrest. He, he stands up, he represents law and order. His very presence 
to these people whose voices are probably flagging is enough to bring silence. And he brings them a quick three-part answer to what they're doing. First of all, he says, listen, everyone knows Artemis of the Ephesians is the greatest. Everybody knows that. And everybody knows that here in Ephesus, we are the guardians of the temple. This, this god is worshipped in more than 30 cities throughout Asia, and everyone knows we're her biggest fans. We care for the temple. I mean, there's no way that these few itinerant teachers are going to overturn all of that. He's kind of doing what Gamaliel did in the Sanhedrin. Look, if we believe in this stuff, this temple, this whole system of worship around which our city is built, if it's true, if it's solid, it can't be overturned by just a few people spouting ideas. Secondly, these men are not temple raiders and they haven't blasphemed. I think that's important. From the point of view, even of the pagans, they haven't blasphemed. Paul has spoken against idolatry without going intentionally into the area that would cause people to draw back, calling out their goddess by name and blaspheming her in their ears. There is a winsome way to point people to Jesus and even to show them their sin. Thirdly, he says, there's a right way to do this. There is a forum for your grievances here in Ephesus. If you want to sue these people for the damage they've done to your business, you can do that. There's proconsuls, there's courts, courts. go through the right channels. If you want to go further than that and see them convicted of crimes and punished, there's a way to do that as well. Bring them to a lawful assembly. There's a carrot and stick here. He's like, if you want this stuff, you can get it if you disperse now and go about it the right way. The stick is, if Rome thinks that this city is full of unrest, we're all in huge trouble. If that happened, the entire city would be placed under martial law and freedoms would be limited. And so he says, you're dismissed, head home. And they do. And yes, God is at work here in his providence. He, he saves these two men who continue to be powerful ministers of the gospel. Yes, he, he steps in with a, a very unexpected uh, means of rescue, which God often does. But notice that Jesus is not proclaimed. 15 to 20,000 people gathered together against the gospel, and almost every other time in the book of Acts something like that happens, the gospel is proclaimed to those people because there's a ready audience. Here it does not happen. Why? It's been silenced for the moment. This is very unusual, and it must have occurred to Paul. This is now over. I've got to stop trying to drag it out And in verse 1 of the next chapter, which we'll start looking at next week, or the week after, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. You know, last week with the issue of the seven sons of Sceva, we saw that the name of Jesus is not some magic word, not a formula to be invoked. He's sovereign. Here we see that the Holy Spirit is not some force that we lead around on a leash. Rather, we are led by him. We go where he leads. Now, can we blame Paul for hanging back? I don't think so. And this is a very mild rebuke from God. God keeps him safe in all this, keeps the disciples safe, just gives a little nudge. You ever get one of those from God and the Spirit? A little nudge forward, a little reminder that we must subject our plans to his will. That even as the Lord Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. When we make plans, there's always that caveat, if the Lord wills it. And when we resolve in the Spirit, when we are certain we know the direction God is leading us, that we don't drag our feet and look back. 
Our plans are not God's plans. His plans are eternal. Our plans are subject to change. Ultimately, Paul does make it to Rome. If you know the story of the Bible at all, you know that. But he does not make it there the way he thought he would or intended to. And I think we can learn something from Demetrius here as well. That if something seems great and glorious to us, or even probably really what was going on, if something is comfortable to us, we will defend it even against the Holy Spirit. And even as believers, we have that tendency in us. And yet Paul, he has that tendency to want to hang back, to to stay in the place of comfort, but he feels that propulsion forward more than he feels his own reticence. He says, I've got to go beyond where I've been. I've got to bring the gospel beyond where I've brought it. I've got to go beyond, past the edges of my former reach. Paul's headed west, and that is a dangerous place to go, but it's more dangerous to stand still in complacency. Yeah, there's danger in discontentment to say, oh, this is no good. This is too small what we've got going. It's not powerful enough. There's not enough resources. That's dangerous. But the opposite side of things, complacency is dangerous as well. To say, we'll just sit here and be comfortable. At our church, how can we move toward the edges of our former reach? Bringing the gospel further out. Well, I'll tell you, I think this church is very good at reaching people who've come to a point of thinking that says, I need something in my life, something bigger than all this. I'm, I am not finding satisfaction in the world. I think I'll go and walk into a church. And when they do that, they find a body of people who will say, yeah, let's walk with you toward Jesus. Perhaps we need to start thinking about how we can go out further to those who have not yet reached that point and point them to the cross all the same and tell them there's more to life than this than the satisfaction of a great name or, or physical gratification or a bunch of possessions or something like that. We are undoubtedly will feel a, a desire to stay back a little bit, to stay kind of hunkered inside the church walls. The fear that Demetrius had was understandable, but it was because he had no sense of a true and sovereign God. His God was a God that he made. He would make these shrines and hand them out. His guy was carved out of wood, literally, and had many breasts. That's weird, you guys. Our God is sovereign, and his plans are eternal from before the foundation of the world, built on the foundation of his own omnipotence. And his every promise is yes and amen in Christ, and we know this. And as followers of Jesus, we're not in bondage to the past, racked with guilt and regret about our former missteps and sins and mistakes, nor are we shackled by fear of the future and the uncertainty that lays before us because we know that Jesus is already in tomorrow and the next day and the next. God is waiting for us 10 years down the road and knows where we will be. We don't, but he does. Let me close with the words that Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. I know whom I have believed, And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Let that be our prayer here in this church and your prayer in your spirit as you resolve in the spirit how God would have you bring the gospel into your world, into your place of work, your neighborhood, your family, pushing out past the edges. We don't serve a God that's carved out of wood sitting in a temple. We serve the God of all creation who created all of this with a word 
who, who is eternal and omnipotent, a God who will be with us and never leave us or forsake us. Heavenly Father, we do pray that when we have a tendency like Paul to hang back, to say we see that next step that must be taken, but we want to just wait a moment, not yet, not yet, that we would feel the nudge of your spirit within us, that we would feel pressed toward the goal, even as Paul was, that, Lord, you would gently take us by the hand and lead us forward. Lord, we pray that we would submit our plans to your great plan and that we would walk in the spirit. In your holy name we pray. Amen.